Let me take God's word and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 this morning. It will be various places, but this will be the ultimate thrust as we hone in on one particular aspect of the life of the church in Acts chapter number 2. If you will, we'll stand, if you're able, willing, for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And this is the word of the Lord in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And the emphasis this morning is going to be on that, um, that portion of Scripture describing the activity of the church. They continued steadfastly in verse number 42 in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And at some point it may not make sense where I'm going, but the, but the emphasis this morning is going to be in that last activity and in prayers. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you and praise you the privilege it is just to call upon your name. Father, we recognize the unworthiness and the inadequacy to think that we could even approach the God of heaven and earth. Father, but you command us to. And even in spite of our own unworthiness, you've made us worthy in your Son. We do not come to you this morning in and of ourselves, Father, in our own sinful flesh or by our own strength, but we come to you singularly and wholly for the, um, in the person of Jesus Christ because of what he's accomplished on our behalf. Father, made worthy in him. May we not take any other route to the throne room of grace this morning. Father, may we not come by any other measure, by our own skill, by our own intellect, by our own craftiness, Father, by any of those things, but help us to come this morning, Father, by the blood of Christ and what he's accomplished on our behalf, Father. So then let us come boldly. So, Father, we come boldly. Father, we come boldly to petition and to ask that you might meet with us this morning, Father, in a very special way. Father, I'm not special in a sense that you give us anything, Father, that um, our fathers didn't have. Not something unique, Father, that we can uphold ourselves and think that we are anything special, but just that special grace that you give, Father, with, to your people throughout all generations, throughout all nations, um, even at this time and in days to come, Father, that you have promised the presence of you, yourself um, with your people, Father, as we gather together in accordance with your word. So, Father, would you do that special thing this morning? You know, we say that at the end of it, Father, that we have experienced the very presence of Christ in the gathering of God's people. Father, would you go with us now to your word? Um, Father, would you aid us to be faithful as in expositing the scriptures? Father, would you um, help us to just humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God 
in due time, Father. Would you help us to pursue Christ this morning and to exalt his name, Father, as we um, gather around your word. Father, may that be our purpose this morning as we come to the text. May you make us more like your son, Father, as a result of it. Um, God, we need you for these things. We come utterly incapable and unable to accomplish eternal things. But we serve an eternal God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think this morning. So, Father, help us to pursue you in faith. God, help us to pursue you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. No need to turn there. But if you were to go to James chapter number 5 and verse number 17, you would read these words that Elijah prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. What an interesting phrase, that phrase, prayed earnestly. If by chance you love the King James translation and you have one in your lap right now, if you have a study Bible, you may notice or have marginal notes. If you were to go to the margin, you may see this little note in an alt- as an alternate translation where it says this for that phrase, prayed earnestly, prayed in his prayer. It can literally be translated prayed prayerfully. The two words have the exact same root in the original. It's only that one's a verb and one's a noun. What do we make of that? Commentator Alex Ross says, A man may pray with his lips and yet not pray with an intense desire of the soul. Have you ever prayed, got done, and thought, wow, just had a great conversation with myself. Or I just wasted five minutes or ten minutes or fifteen minutes talking to myself. Many of you ever stood up in front of a congregation or at a family function or sitting before your wife or your children and lied to them about speaking to God because he was farther from your prayer than Antarctica or some other foreign land. It may have been doctrinally correct. It may have been eloquently put. It may have been traditionally carried out. And it may have even been seemingly passionate because your tone changed and your volume changed at times when it was appropriate. But at the end of the day, you're not sure if God was on the other side or if you just had a good conversation with those that were around you. Of course, God heard. God is all-knowing and He's ever-present. But we're not talking about, did God hear you? But more pointedly, did you commune with God? And did God commune with you? See, that's the primary purpose of prayer. It is, as the Reformers would often put, quote, taking hold of God. Taking hold of God wasn't just a pithy phrase that they constituted to explain what prayer would be like in their own vernacular, but it was a quotation from from Isaiah 64 and verse number 7 where judgment is being poured out upon the nation of Israel, and this is God's word to them. Where he says, this is one part of their condemnation, there's no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us 
and have consumed us because of our iniquities. And actually, I want to turn to Isaiah and read the rest of that passage. I didn't put it in my notes, but if you were to carry on, you would read, But now, O Lord, you are, your, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. And all we are at work, and all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We all are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Will you? Essentially, they had lost the communing presence of God in the nation of Israel. And what was on them was the hand of chastisement and judgment from the very God of very God. They could no longer commune with the Lord. Why? Because he says there, the temple is gone. Our holy and our beautiful temple where our fathers praise you. Jerusalem, he says previous, is a, desert, is a desolation. Zion is a wilderness. It's a desolate place. It's a place where there is no life. And while that could have been physically true, um, it was definitely spiritually true. The temple in Scripture is a beautiful place, as is recounted here. It's beautiful physically, but it was even more beautiful spiritually. It's a place where eventually God lays down uh, before David a desire to have a permanent dwelling place, a place that would be the center of activity in the midst of the nation. It would be a place where God would dwell with His people. You know, and this is not foreign to Scripture. Prior to the nation of Israel or after, that's always been um, God's desire to have a people for Himself in the very pages, opening pages of Scripture and at the very end. What you find is that very phrase that God desired to have a people for Himself and a people that would have Him as their God that they would dwell together, that they would commune one with another. I'm convinced that the Garden of Eden was the first temple arrangement in which God dwelt with His people. Remember, He walked with them in the cool of the day. The language that's given to Adam in reference to his duties um, in regard to what he was supposed to do in the garden. So imagine this. um, You have the entirety of the world. God plants a garden uh, and puts an Eden, uh, the Garden of Eden places man in it. This place within all of creation, it's all his, but this would be the realm of activity. And as he dwelled with there, they were to, to, to um, multiply image and spread that image to the ends of the earth. And the very same language that is used and in, in given to, uh, in reference to the responsibilities that's given um, to Adam to tend and to keep the garden is the exact same language that is given um, in the daily temple operations given to the Levitical priesthood. It's only translated different because the context is different. But tend and keep is the exact same language um, of the responsibilities that God gave, for example, to Aaron um, in the uh, tabernacle and in the temple. Um, The tabernacle is constructed. The temple is constructed. Why? Because God desires to dwell with His people. It's the place of sacrifice like the garden. And as long as they keep the precepts, they enjoy communion with God, particularly once a year in the central place, in the central piece of the tabernacle or the temple called the Holy of Holies. This is where um, the, the priest would go in, the high priest Aaron, and he would uh, atone for the sins of the people with the blood of a sacrifice. And he would literally meet with God there. Um, but then you could ask, what happened? What happened, just like it happened in the garden, happened in the temple, that the nation and the people of God, Adam and Eve, broke covenant, and what happened? They were kicked out of the land. Right, kicked out of the garden. 
And the garden was guarded. What happened in the temple? They were kicked out of the temple. What happened? The, the land was left desolate. Jerusalem is a desolation. And then they broke covenant and were kicked out. Then you come to the New Testament. What does God desire? Still to dwell with His people. But under a new covenant, He secures those people by His own blood. A better covenant. Better than Aaron. Better than the high priest. Better than the sacrifices. Better than all these things Hebrews tells us. Um, and one of the great privileges of that sacrifice now is that um, Christ has accomplished the reality that He can dwell once again with His people. Um, Hebrews 4.14 says, Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Hebrews 10.19, the same author goes on to say, uh, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil. Old Testament imagery, Old Testament temple. Behind that veil was the Holy of Holies. It was that inner place in which once a year the high priest would go in and literally the presence of God would come and uh, the petitions would be made known to um, Jehovah at that time. He goes on to say that is the flesh. The veil was the flesh. The veil was, in New Testament, Jesus Christ. His flesh was broken. The veil was torn. And having a high, now we have a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with blood, with pure water. Sorry. Ephesians 2.14, you also read these words. We've become very familiar with, I hope, Ephesians the last few weeks. For He, speaking of Christ Himself, is our peace who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition. What's that? The veil. Having abolished in His flesh the enmity. Then verse number 18, For through Him we have both Jew and Gentile have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Note that phrase, household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Jesus, in the giving of Himself, presents the ultimate sacrifice to the Father, His own blood. Why? To atone for the sins of His people. And in doing that, He abolishes enmity and provides direct access to the Father by Jesus Christ. And now, in the church in this age is the temple the church in this age is the temple of God thus the place where God dwells with his people and we see this all throughout the new testament 1 Corinthians 3:16 know you not that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwelleth in you that's the significance of the temple why were their prayers in Isaiah unable to be heard? Why um, did he turn his face from them? Because the very place that he dwelled was no more. They desecrated the temple. His dwelling place was removed from the nation of Israel and they are cast out because they broke covenant. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16 goes on to say, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy in which temple you are. Speaking of the church. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, To whom coming as a, unto a living stone... Disallowed indeed of men, speaking of Christ, but chosen of God and precious. He also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house 
and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And if you focus in on just a minute, you catch it. Hence, the spiritual house, household of God. You know, oftentimes we read that phrase and we think he's talking about the family of God. And that's one of the great images of Christ and his church. But this isn't speaking about the family of God. When he speaks of the household of God, he speaks of the dwelling place of God or the temple of God. And that's why Peter puts in the household the priesthood in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. Um, he says they're built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. Why? For the same purpose that the priest had in the Old Testament to offer up spiritual sacrifices... Because sacrifices were offered where in the temple where God dwelt. Second Corinthians six sixteen. Paul applies the same Old Testament imagery to the and prophecies to the church when he says that he argues that you're not to be yoked together with unbelievers. What does he say in uh, application? He says, "What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. God has said, I dwell in them and walk among them." I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Reference to Old Testament Scripture. Acts 15, 12. Um, you see the Jerusalem Council and the argument over keeping of the law and circumcision. Um, you find that the multitude has kept silent in verse 12 and listened to Barnabas and Saul declaring the many miracles and wonders. And then you read these words and after that they've become silent. James answers saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. There's an argument over... This is a side note. There's an argument over whether Gentiles should be included in the family of God. So this is what James is, is, um, is, is addressing. And after that they had become silent. James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has now declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them for a people for His name. And with the word of the prophets, just as is written, it says this, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord who does all these things. Then He goes on to say, No to God from eternity are all His works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are, not, who are turning to God, but that we write them to abstain from things polluted by idols. It almost sounds just like 2 Corinthians, right? That, there is, that, 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 that this temple is being built up under the new covenant uh, administration, the church age in which is the people of God. Therefore you should be holy. And the Gentiles, Ephesians chapter 2, the Gentiles are included in that. That is very reminiscent of Ephesians 2. Jew and Gentile coming together as one new man, a building, a temple in which God's presence would be known to the world. So, he argues, be holy. When you see the New Testament church, you see a church, you see a people upon which is the presence of God. Why? Because He dwells with those people. Therefore, they're encouraged to be holy and to come to Him and to dwell alongside Him. It is a church in which God is active among its membership. You see a church in which God communes with His people and they commune with Him. Why? Because it was the purpose of the Son to take for Himself a people in which His presence would be known. Thus we see the church as God's building and God's institution. And we can learn a lot from that. That this is God's building and not ours. He sees fit how He builds it, not us. It's a pretty phenomenal study if you were to go to the Old Testament and see how intricately God created the tabernacle and the temple. It wasn't as if the Lord was like, hey, Israel, like I just, you know, I just need a place. 
You know, you should go and uh, anywhere you find, just plop down, create an A-frame house with moderate good materials. Like, I just want somewhere to live. Um, just get me a little rain coverage and we'll all be good. Like, it wasn't like that at all. God was extremely detailed in the construction of the temple. Just speaking of the temple, He determined how it would be built, who would build it, the materials that went into it, the tools that were and were not to be used, and the exact dimensions of every single room, the furniture that goes in and the furniture that stays out. You know what? You see that in the New Testament church as well. You see that God determines what the building is and what it's made of and how it's made. And that was even up for dispute in the New Testament as we just read in Acts chapter 15 and Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 that the mystery was that the Gentiles would come in and the Jews, even some of those that were Christians, um, would argue that, 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 that this isn't how, Lord, you're supposed to build your temple. Um, but God said, no, the Gentiles are a part of it. You know, I save whom I want to save. I, I do what I want to do. I extend mercy to whom I want to extend mercy. I, I, I give grace to whom I want to give grace. I'm the potter. You're the clay. Romans chapter number 9. I, I, do, I build as I want to build. I put in it the, the materials that I want to. And I, and I, I determine the methods in which um, that is accomplished. Not only that, do you see that the activity in it is, is governed by God Himself. It's also a pretty intriguing study to go to the Old Testament and read of the intricacies of the worship of the temple. Not only does God care how it's made, but God cares what's done in it. It wasn't a social club. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a place that people just came to hang out. It wasn't somewhere to, to make a name for yourself. It wasn't about power and it wasn't about prestige. It was literally about the dwelling place of God. Like This is where we meet Him. He determines where. He determines the place. Some worship up on the mountain, some worship down here. Does it matter? It mattered then and it matters now. He told the priest what to do and what not to do, what sacrifices were sufficient and what wasn't. The exact ingredients of the incense to be burned, um, the, 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 the nature of the furniture, what was to be done at each one. Why? Because that was the way that you made it to God in those days. And like you think uh, that God was kind of like a grandfather sitting in a rocking chair just happy with his children coming and bringing them whatever um, he wanted. It's not like that at all. Um, just a cursory reading will show you that men like Uzzah and men like Nadab and Abihu who depart from the Scripture and the prescription of what God desired, like it didn't go well for them. And even within the New Testament, you say that that was Old Testament God. He's kind of fiery and judgmental, you know. That's not New Testament God. Have you ever read Acts? Ananias and Sapphira? Have you ever read 1 Corinthians chapter number 11? When people were taking of the table illegitimately, he warns them that some are dying because of it. Um, so it matters. It matters. I don't want you to walk away thinking that you're going to die if you... You know, if you do something wrong today, God is extremely patient and, and long-suffering. And, and those were unique experiences. I just I want to illustrate that, that God cares. God cares what happens within the temple. God cares what happens within your body. God cares. Why? Because your temple is a body. And God cares what happens within the church because this is God's uh, temple. This is what He's building up. Why? So that He may dwell here. And He doesn't just dwell in shambles. You know, He doesn't dwell in in uh, riots. He doesn't dwell in debauchery. He doesn't dwell in sin. That's why with almost every single one of those exhortations, it ends with an exhortation to be ye holy. For I am holy. Don't give yourself over to idols, church. Keep the idolatry out of the temple and keep me in the holy place or in the holy of, of holies. So he determines um, how he builds his church. Who's in here and who's out, you know? 
We look around and we think, man, that guy shouldn't. I don't even know if he's saved. God determines that, not you. You know, God determines who comes. God determines the membership. God determines who He brings. Um, God determines who is His children. You may not like them. You may not coalesce with them. That's the whole point. You're to come together with them, Jew and Gentile. And that's why And God melds us together and edifies the body of itself in love. He gives us attributes that are not our own. And He gives us activity um, that is not necessarily our own. And it's by virtue of that, by virtue of the cross, so God builds it, right? And the great thing about that is that God has already done the work. Like you don't have to go like in the Garden of Eden and follow necessarily precepts and, and principles and commands to, to dwell with God like that. Or you don't have to go to the Old Covenant and the Temple or the Tabernacle and go through these prescriptions. Jesus Christ has already accomplished that on your behalf. You know, like He is a greater high priest who has entered into the holiest of holies and presented His own blood on your behalf, you and I or to appropriate that by grace through faith and repentance. And when we come to that, we now enter into the benefits that He's already accomplished. He's in the Holy of Holies. He's already done all of that. You and I are now to live according to the standards that He has given us to dwell with Him, um, born out of the character, the nature, and the work that He has already accomplished. I'm not up here today to tell you that we need to do anything in this church to appease or to please God in a saving way. Jesus Christ has already accomplished that on our behalf. And today, if you do not know Jesus Christ is Savior, He commands every man everywhere to repent. That today is the day of salvation um, to those who believe. So I implore you to do that. So what in the world does that have to do with prayer, right? Um, Well, under the Old Covenant, the priesthood had a special duty. Had multiple special duties in service. They were the only people with actually the regular sense and the right to even do them. They were the only ones. The high priest Aaron was the only guy who was able to go into the holiest of holies um, once a year, and that was that was awesome. That was also terrible. You know, it would have killed a man um, had he done it inappropriately, or the wrong man would have done it. So the holy of holies was a place where the presence of God would come. It was separated. Um, with a veil. So Aaron would have to go behind the veil after he walked through the holy place. Um, he would spend time making himself clean um, at the brazen laver or this little wash pot. And then he would come and he would burn incense um, right before the veil and this cloud would come up of a sweet-smelling savor. And uh, with the blood of a, a spotless lamb or a spotless beast, he would enter in through the cloud Um, into the very presence of God to make petitions known unto this holiest of holies, this God of of war and this God of um, judgment, but also this God of gracious love. And what you would see was one particular activity, as I said, outside, that there would be, uh, God cared about the incense. It was, it was a, a, a spice, multiple spices mixed together that would create this cloud that would make it possible um, in which you could move in. If you didn't do that, you would be obliterated, essentially. Um, you, you come to the Old Testament and even the New Testament, what you begin to find is that you begin to find that, that, the, that part of entering in and dwelling with God and part of that communion with God is pictured in the incense. Uh, Psalm 141 verse 2 says, Let my prayer be set before you as an incense. The lifting up my hands as, of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Revelation 5 and verse number 8, um, you read these words. Now when they, he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. 
each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. What you find is that under the new covenant, the church age, the administration, as the people come to the temple of God, that the people of God commune with the Lord and enter into His presence through the prayers of the saints. That Jesus Christ the righteous has entered into the holiest of places to give you and I access to to, to places that that most men were never able to go prior to that. That whenever you come to uh, the epistle of Peter that we read earlier, that what does he do? He makes us a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Now, not only is there one man that's able to go in and make petitions known to God and to bring the, the, the petitions of the nation to Him, but now, every single person located within this body and this generation and since the time of Christ have had the privilege of Aaron to walk in to the very presence of God and to commune with Him and offer the prayers and the petitions of the saints. That This is one of the vast blessings and commodities of the New Testament and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ Himself. Thus, Acts teaches us many things, but one of the things that it teaches us is that corporately and individually, but particularly Acts teaches us corporately, the activities that we are to be engaged in as a local congregation. Acts 2.42 tells us that we are to engage in the prayers. The prayers. And your, your translation may not say that. If you have an ESV, you actually have it. It says the prayers. It is plural and it is definite. Um, the fellowship, the prayers, it is something significant and it is something plural and it is something um, corporate. At the most basic level, we see that the activity in which the church was engaged in because of what Christ accomplished were various things. The doctrine of the church, the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, which we we may uh, believe is the, the Lord's Supper and the prayers. And that the basic framework for communion with God is that it is governed often by the activity in which we engage in as a church. So why preach on this, you know? Uh, you know, I had a lot of things I wanted to preach on, kind of a general fashion, I wanted to cover throughout the study. And as we've went, it's kind of taken shape and when and how that would be preached. I had initially planned to preach on the Apostles' Doctrine first. Um, I will. There's no worry about that. Um, I preach on this because um, I think about the maturity and the unity of the church and I think the activity of the church is um, contingent or the, the maturity and the unity of the church is often is contingent upon the activity that we engage in. And when you talk about Ephesians chapter number 4 and what we went through the last two weeks, we talk about unity, authority, uh, maturity, unity, diversity, all those things. And you wonder, how do you take as a pastor a church from uh, immaturity to maturity. Not that you're immature, but that's the goal of every pastor. There are, all of us are going to have some immaturity in areas, and even as a church, we're going to be immature um, in the life of the church. There's just no doubt about that. It's like a two-year-old or a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. They can be mature for their age, but there's still immaturity. And the goal is to bring them up to the next level. Um, so there will, this, this will be the ever uh, endeavor of the church here at Christ Bible Church in Kingsport. This will always be the goal. The goal will be, practically speaking, to bring this congregation to maturity. Um, and to do that, there are certain activities in which we must engage in, um, which would, is, has been constant throughout the ages. 
in every church that has ever prospered in the Lord. Now, some cultures and some contexts, it's going to look somewhat different. Um, the way that the church life is carried out, whether you want to talk about music or you want to talk about activity or you want to talk about ministries or you want to talk about even location. American ministry is going to look different than um, African ministry and, and closed countries and various other things. But there are some things that are constant. There are some things that among every single church in every age since the time of Christ, because of what He accomplished, Jesus Christ, um, through His Spirit, according to the Father, desires for us to do because we are. And the thing that I think is most pressing upon my heart in the last few weeks in reference to examining our church and this church and even my own life is just the need for prayerfulness. I think we've got doctrine pretty well fixed. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. There's things that we'll probably change and we'll need to repent of. And I've changed my mind. I've got used to repentance. You know, I'm not afraid of just changing a doctrinal statement or, uh, uh, you know, changing a little phrase or this or that whenever there's some dogma or, you know, uh, to, 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 to dispute. I'm always open to that. There, there is, we can always fine tune the sword of the Spirit and the way that we understand um, what God desires for us in the truth, uh, in, a, in, in, in the realm of truth. Um, in examining my own life and in examining the life of the church and thinking about 2020 and thinking about 2021 and thinking about who we are and what we should do and the ministries we should engage in and this and that, you know, and that's always a topic of conversation with people, with you and with me, like what should we be doing, this and that, you know. Um, And I'm convinced in 2021 that if we do nothing other than start prayer groups, that that will be the best year that we've had. Because I am convinced that the lifeblood of the church um, and that which even makes the Word effective is the prayers of the saints as we commune and dwell with Him. That if we are going to prosper and that if we are going to move forward and that if we are going to um, engage the world, if we are going to evangelize, if we are going to start ministries, if we are going to do this and that, and, uh, then, then it is going to have to be born out of communion with God, His dwelling in us and us with Him, um, such that we have clarity and direction and we are reaching for and after things that God has given us a desire for. So knowing the truth, um, but also... Seeking the Lord that the truth may come to reality in our life by faith. That whenever you read the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, there is no way around the fact that you have a church that was steeped in prayer. They did a lot of things, but they did very little apart from prayer and communion with Him. When you come to, um, you don't need to turn there, but Acts chapter 1 and verse number 12, you see that they prayed together generally and for wisdom in establishing leaders to take place of Judas. In chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, you see the natural tenor of the church was to give themselves over to the prayers. Chapter 3, verse 1, you see Peter and John go up together to the temple. Why? To pray. Chapter 4 and verse number 23 through 31, you actually see them come together as one voice and the church prays for boldness in the face of opposition and persecution. What you find also in those texts is that immediately following, you find God gracious in saving people all throughout the community. You go to Acts chapter number 6 and you see that the church prays for the blessing of the selected leaders. The apostles stay devoted to corporate and individual prayer. You find in chapter 7, Stephen, Stephen the first martyr prays for the forgiveness of those who are stoning him and ultimately will take him take his life. 
Chapter 8, verse 14 and 15, Peter and John pray together with the saints in Samaria that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, 22, Peter commands Simon to repent and to pray that the intent of his heart would be forgiven. And Simon asked Peter to join him in prayer. Chapter 9 and verse 40, Peter prays and sees a woman raised from the dead. Chapter 10, Cornelius prays to the Lord and God gives him direction for salvation. Verse 9 through 23, Peter follows his prayer regimen and God confronts his personal prejudices and his limited view of God. Chapter 12, you see the church prays together for Peter's deliverance. Peter is delivered and comes to the prayer meeting that they were having and breaks it up only to pray with him. Chapter 13, the church fasts and pray for God to multiply his work throughout the region. Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in chapter 14 and commit them to get to the Lord together through prayer. Uh, Paul and Silas in chapter 16 and Luke collectively go to a place of prayer. Paul and Silas pray together while they're being persecuted in jail in verse 25. Chapter 20 and verse 36, Paul prays with the pastors as he gets ready to leave the church. Verse, uh, chapter 21, Paul prays with the family of God before he sets sail to Jerusalem. This would ultimately be the trip that he would resolve to die for Christ. And maybe he would be put to the test. Chapter 27, Luke, Paul, and the crew in the ship pray together as they fear being shipwrecked. And chapter 28, Paul prays for the healing of a man suffering from dysentery. He's healed and the rest of the people on the island come for healing. All throughout the New Testament, you find Paul in Ephesians praying multiple prayers for the saints. You find Paul requesting prayer for the saints, or for himself to the saints. You find the church praying together and praying for one another. You go to Revelation and you see the prayers of the saints being honored and blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ um, Himself, the Lamb. That's what you find. You find in Acts chapter 2, the framework, which would be the framework for the rest of the life of the church. And it still is today that you and I, this church, would give ourselves over steadfastly, he says in verse 42, in prayers. In prayers. You may have a translation that says devoted. Devoted. If you were to go to Romans chapter 12 and verse number 12, you don't need to necessarily turn there. But you would see the exact same phrase where um, Paul encourages the church at Rome to be devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. But that's the call today. You say, what should we do in 2021? I'm convinced that if we do nothing else than seek the Lord in prayer, that this will have been a fruitful year. Why? Because we may be looking at each other and running around with our chickens, like chickens with our head cut off, not knowing what to do. Um, but I ask this question, have we sought Him in prayer? Could it be that the lack of clarity and direction in my own life as well as in the life of the church is because we have not prayed? And you ask yourself about unity. Let me ask you, let's, let's ask the question about unity. How in the world is a, an unbeliever or people to come into the church and how are they to, um, to um, even be able to tell that we're in unity? Have you ever thought about that? If it is to be manifested to a lost and a dying world, or it is to be manifested among us, then I'd ask you, by what criteria um, do we have to manifest it? By what tangible evidence would somebody come in and, and say, this body's in unity? You ever think about that? You know, because you know, we sang together a few hymns and a guy got up and yelled at you for an hour. We just assume you agreed with me, you know? 
And the, the people that come in, I assume that you do as well, and I know that most of you do because of the life that we have, but if somebody was to come in that was new, and maybe even unconverted, would they walk away and say, man, this church is unified. I may not agree with them. And I don't agree with them, but I do um, believe that they are a force to be reckoned with because whatever they have determined to do, they will do it together. They will live for it and they will die for it as one new man or one old man. I am convinced that, that among many things that the corporate nature of prayer would have been one way that people would have been able to look at the church and said, man, we're unified. Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're wondering after the preaching and teaching and after the sermons and the, and the text, you're wondering, man, are we unified? How is it up to this point that we don't know? If that's a question in your mind, and that's a question in mine, I think I do. I'm, I'm asking the question mostly for you. You know, How is it that we could come together and, and some are still wondering whether or not there is unity among the body after you know, six months, after two years, or after five years? Is there unity present among us? How will we know? I'm going to give you one of the evidences that I believe um, that would signify and be a clear manifestation of the unity of the body of Christ, and that is corporate prayer. You hear multiple men throughout um, the service or in a prayer meeting or at a, a, a small group or this or that praying, and you, you begin to, to, to tell um, whether, and you can begin to tell with, I think, concrete evidence of what their desires are and whether those desires are unified towards one single goal with a singularity of heart. That's what he says in Acts chapter 2, that, th that there were certain things they were doing together because of the simplicity or the singularity of their heart. And I'm convinced that that's exactly why the Lord blessed them so graciously. That one, that, that one of the things that distinguishes a New Testament church apart from a false church or an un unregenerate church or a synagogue of Satan, or um, this organization, or that institution, is the corporate nature of being devoted to prayer. Not only individually. It's born in individuals, but it's carried out in congregations. It is to be devoted to prayer. So I would ask you today, are you devoted to prayer? Are you devoted to prayer? You know, it's interesting if you were to go to Romans chapter 12, not so much Acts chapter 2. And you were to pull up your, um, you know, your Bible word or whatever you got, blue letter Bible, and you would go to that um, translations and you would see the way that the, the, the text is translated in all the different translations. In Romans chapter 12 and verse number 12, and he speaks of being devoted to prayer, it's really interesting that almost no translations agree. And it's not that they're not in agreement, it's that the, the word is so unique that there's so many different avenues um, to explain exactly what that word means. So several, all the translators seem to pick a different word to give the essence of what they mean in reference to the prayer. Because if we want to know what it means to be devoted to prayer, we have to know what it means to be devoted, right? So to answer the question, am I devoted to prayer, and are we devoted to prayer as a congregation, and the activity which God has given us to commune with Him and with one another, that His presence may be known among us, then the... Um, the command or the uh, implication is, is that, that the prayer that is to describe us individually is to be devoted. So what does it mean? Well, one translation puts it continuing steadfastly, like the New King James. Um, another translation says persistent. It says continuing instant, I believe, in another translation. Be constant, one says. Keep on praying, one translation translates it. Faithful in prayer. Um, ESV, I believe, says devoted to prayer. Maybe not. You can correct me later. 
Another translation says persist in prayer. Another translation says in prayer persevering. Another translation says in that exact same verse, at all times given to prayer. And the last one I have is continuing earnestly in prayer. And maybe we could reference James there. Prayerfully praying. Actually communing with the Lord as if no one else is present. Entering into the throne room of grace and coming not only individually but collectively um, for this singular purpose which may manifest itself differently in different ministries in the life of the church but ultimately it is singularly glorify God um, in all that He is and all that He does. Prayer is, in my opinion, practically, as many have given the illustration, the breath of the Christian. I was reading Luther and Calvin this week and some of the most interesting statements, you know, coming from a a conservative, Bible-believing, Baptist, even Reformed uh, background, we just have a, a hammer on the truth. And, they, and much of our theology was systematized by these men born out of the Bible and their life and ministry. Um, but with both of them and with many of the Reformers and with many of the men today and many of the faithful Christians throughout the world, what we find is, is statements like um, the greatest work of the Christian is prayer. It is the lifeblood of the church. It is practically its breath. That when we become a Christian, things change. Right? When Jesus Christ enters into your life and dwells in you by His Spirit according to His power, um, He takes up resonance and uh, the Bible is explicit. He becomes a new creation. And that as that Spirit lives and dwells and comes inside us and we commune with Him, one of the things that inextricably and and essentially changes is the nature of our prayer. We may be like a baby who cries, but we cry to, to Him who is Abba Father. You know, we totally abandon any sense of self and we come to Him and even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit comes alongside us with groans which cannot be uttered. That there is something born in us that was not there before and it is a desire to commune with the King of kings and the Lord of lords by virtue of Christ's death according to the power of His Spirit. That the Spirit produces groanings and inner compulsions in each of us that are born again to cry out to the Father, to the Abba. And when, and even when we pray or don't know what to pray or how to pray, He prays and intercedes for us as a gracious intercessor. That this is essential for the Christian life. And a prayerless Christian um, is not a Christian at all. That's not to say that you won't struggle with prayer. That's not to say that you won't become more devoted to prayer. That's not to say that there won't be times and seasons in which you don't pray or you don't know how to pray or you're struggling with this so it takes away your prayer time and prayer life and you become stagnant. But a, but a, a Christian who has never prayed and never yearns to pray and never yearns to commune with God, which is the purpose of His dwelling and the purpose of, of why He entered into us um, with that, 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 that communion and union with Him um, is no Christian at all. Thus, there should be a pattern, a consistency, and a fervency that looks like devotion to prayer. And if it's not, that should be our pursuit. Certain activities say to the world, man, that guy is devoted, doesn't it? You know? You see a guy driving down the street and you can tell on his car, man, that, devo- that guy's devoted to country. You know? And that's not a bad thing, you know. Um, you see a guy and you just can't, uh, you see a guy and you can tell he's devoted to family, 
you know. There's certain activities that give themselves over um, to looking at a guy or looking at a gal and seeing them, and, and man, they're devoted to one another. You know, there's certain activities that govern um, this, this, this adjective devoted, you know. Imagine with me for a second with a guy who said, I'm devoted to my wife. Well, really, like, tell me what that looks like. And when you get down to it, you know, he um, calls her on the way to work or you know, he texts her every once in a while. He spends most of his days on um, this hobby or that hobby. And, you know, he's at the golf course or he's at the driving range or he's at um, the shooting range or he's with the boys or this or that. And, and you ask him, man, do you love your wife? Like, yeah, I'm love, I love my wife. Are you devoted to your wife? Yes, I, I'm devoted to your wife. I'm devoted to my wife. Well, um, <laughs> does your life testify to that? Because certain activities will determine whether or not you know, um, we are truly devoted. And some of us walk away and think, man, we're devoted to prayer and we, we, we believe in prayer and this and that. And, and I, I just ask you to examine your own heart today and my own heart. You know, I say, if I say that I'm devoted to prayer, what activity um, um, governs and dictates the facts for me to be able to say that honestly? Some people think they're devoted to prayer because they said a prayer in the shower, you know, or they talk to God on the way to work or this or that. You know, they get it in over um, a Thanksgiving meal or over breakfast you know, or right before they go to bedtime. Is that truly being devoted to prayer? Is that being consistent? Is that being persistent? Is that being fervent? Is that at all times being given to prayer? Is that earnest? Is that devoted? Is that faithful? Is that keeping on? Is that being constant? Is that instant? Is that steadfast? Is it? Are we a church that's devoted to prayer? Are we? Matthew 21. Verse number 22. So Jesus answered in verse 21 and said to them, Surely I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what is done in the fig tree, he just withered a fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Whatever things you ask in prayer believing, you will receive. You will receive. What does being devoted to prayer look like? Being devoted to prayer looks like you asking God and getting what you ask for. It's as simple as that. Now, some of you may look and you may get a little squirmish, squeamish in your seat there um, because there's many prosperity preachers and teachers who take and use and abuse that text and many other texts just like it um, to teach somewhat of a blab it and grab it, you know, name it, claim it type of um, gospel um, in which God will pour out uh, your blessing upon you if you ask anything according to His name so they take upon themselves their own lusts. As James says, you know, you have not because you ask not, and um, some of you don't have because you consume it upon your own lusts. Um, and they just, anything that you bring before God, He'll give it to you if you ask it according and, and, and end it with the name of Jesus. That's not what He's talking about here. Um, there's a devotion to prayer, just like in the, um, the teaching of our Lord. Love it, man. Just um, the, the, the Lord's Prayer, right? We often term it, but it really it's the disciples' prayer. Lord, uh, the disciples say, teach us how to pray. Well, how do we pray, Lord? Uh, you pray like this, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Right? That the beginning begins with the very character and nature of God and that our will is conformed to His will and that heaven comes down, not earth comes up or, uh, and, and vice versa. Not that we get everything that we ever desire, but that we, our, our minds and our hearts are shaped like the Lord's and we conform to His and thus the promises that He gives, we pursue and He answers for those things. And those are the things that He answers. Those are the desires that He gives. I remember teaching and preaching early on. <clears throat> wondering if that's what God ever wanted me to do at all. And I came to the conclusion it wasn't my desire, it was His. It wasn't something I wanted, it was something He wanted. Um, the salvation of men, this or that, the ministry to go forth, um, God to just proclaim His name among the Gentiles for His name's sake. Like these are things, kingdom being built. These are things that as you come to Christ and you yield yourself to Him, He begins to give you desires and you pursue those desires and He brings to fruition um, those things. Uh, in your life. And you can look back and say, man, I really I met with God and I was persistent in prayer. I was importunate like the, like the widow who, who just continually keeps going back and asking the Master um, for that which she desires, which is ultimately a desire that um, He gives her. That, that, that devotion to faith is, is, is a pursuit of God um, with your desires that were born out of a relationship with Him, trusting that He will give those things and praising Him with thankfulness when He does and maybe even when He says no. Like with Paul who was buffeted by Satan and he prayed three times, but he came to the conclusion that God answered his prayer um, without actually answering the way that he originally desired. Thus, um, coming to the conclusion that the greatest gift was the sufficiency of Christ. Thus, the answer came from a different route and in a different way. But he was seeking the Lord. He was desiring the Lord to work. Paul was devoted to prayer. Thus, Paul prayed for his kinsmen according to the flesh. You know, one of the dangers is, is you come into a context like this among our church and you got people who are just wholesale sovereign of God people, man. And I love it every minute of it. I love our conversations. But one of the tendencies is, is for us to give ourselves over to a hyper movement um, in which we don't even know how to pray. We don't know how to evangelize because God's the sovereign. You know, He'll save whom He wants to save. Um, we're afraid to give the gospel because we're afraid to give it wrong, this or that. We're afraid to pray because at the end of the day, I mean, God will give us what He wants to give us anyway. If you get that from reading through the New Testament, then you've got it all wrong. Um, what I read when I read the New Testament is that God acts in such a way in the hearts and desires, in the minds of His people, such that He gives them desires and they pursue them wholesale. And as James says, you have not because you ask not. And that what most of us don't have um, what we need here at this church or in our family simply because we have failed to ask. We have failed to ask. Paul wouldn't have prayed for his kinsmen according to the flesh had he thought that it really didn't matter that God would save them if God would save them. He believed that, that, that his prayer was a means of accomplishing the very uh, will of God. Thus, he pursued it with all that he had and all that he was. But there is a sense in which the result definitely hangs in the balance. Say this person will be saved, if that person will be saved, this prayer will be answered, or this need will be answered, if this need will be answered, God will do it accordingly. That, that is not what I get from the New Testament in regard to commands. That today, if you do not have, it could be because you simply do not ask. If you have faith, he says here, if you have faith, believing, you will receive faith. Devoted prayer looks like faithful, faith, faithful prayer, but it also looks like prayer with faith. 
Unbelief is a curse upon the church. Faithlessness is a curse upon the church. And a prayerless church is a faithless church. A prayerless church is a faithless church. Unbelief often, if not always, manifests itself in a lack of prayer. Not mighty works did Christ do where there was no faith. When churches and individuals fail to continue to persevere and pursue the Lord in communion with Him, believing Him for mighty things, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, when we stop doing that, we have just started, uh, we have just started a decline in degradation. And if something doesn't happen soon, um, we will be like those churches over in Revelation of whom sin has encumbered them and they are dead men and don't even know it. If a, if, a, if a church that is prayerful and lively is like a man with breath in it, a prayerless church is like a dead man on a gurney. And there's many churches like that today living on ventilators um, with a, a rise in their chest and a, and a hope in their, you know. Um, but they just haven't come to grips with the fact that yet that they need to pull the plug. Generally, it was prayer together around a special event or a desperate need that brought them together, and that's true. But some will say, well, that's the only time we need to pray or we only need to pray collectively. When it's persecution, when Peter's in prison, at the day of Pentecost, when you ordain elders or deacons or ordain missionaries. Now, Luke did choose to point those things out of earnest corporate prayer, and it was instrumental in the infancy and the activity of the church, but those weren't the only times to pray. Those were definitely times to pray. And if you say those are the only times to pray, I ask you this question, do we not have such needs? If persecution and opposition and various other things were a means, um, ordaining elders and deacons and this and that, um, if these were means or, or, and, 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 and places and times for corporate prayer, do we not have the same? Are we not persecuted and are we not opposed? Are we not maturing and are we not seeking to be unified? Do we not need deacons and do we not need elders? Do we not need men that are mature? Do we not need to lead our families well? Do we not have unbelieving friends and family in this community that needs Christ? Do we not have demons and satanic uh, influence all around us by which we need to bombard the throne of grace? Because if we do not ask, we will not get. The prayerless church is no prayer at all. Is no church at all. A church that continually neglects or denies the benefits of Christ, sacrifices them, do not have the gospel. They will be a church in which the candle is quickly removed. A prayerless church is a church that, that can fall heavy on doctrine and teaching and the Word of God, yet there is no power because they have a form of godliness. They have no power to make it effective. And that's what they call the dead man. It's a church who has a testimony that it's alive, yet it's not. as to little to no faith, and it's evident by the fact that they are not seeking the Lord for much of anything. They might as well try to speak to the world into existence because they're fools trying to accomplish what is impossible. Literally. It is a church that may be unified, but they're unified in something other than Christ's power and resurrection. They may have a doctrinal statement that unifies them, a common life and hobbies, a common interest that bring them together. But what God has designed for the church is that they need a common spirit that unifies them, dwells with them, gives them godly desires, and they pursue those things for the kingdom of Christ together. 
What does devoted prayer look like? It looks like a church and individuals that are pursuing Christ for what He promised and the desires that He gave them. Mark chapter 9 and verse number 29. You read these words. And we'll get there in Mark eventually one day next year. <laughs> um, Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples are all boggled and the people um, about some demons. In verse number 29, He says to them, so He said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. You know what devotion to prayer looks like? It looks like prayer that wages war against the devil. This kind, right? So apparently there's different kinds of demonic entities. You go to Ephesians, you see rulers and uh, powers and principalities and this and that, um, and, and rulers in dark places, and you see kind of a hierarchy um, you see that there's certain kinds, and this kind comes down, and he says, "There's no greater weapon, essentially. There's no greater weapon in human that human that mankind has a means to appropriate than 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 prayer and fasting to cast out this demon. This kind only gives way to prayer and fasting. That part of the reason that a a church is not prayerful is it because uh, the reason." could be because they are not watchful. Um, I think it's 1 Corinthians in chapter number 7. Actually, maybe Colossians. Colossians verse 4, or chapter 4, and verse number 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving meanwhile also praying for us that god would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of christ for i which i am also in chains continue earnestly prayerfully pray talk to the lord dwell with him commune be watchful be vigilant what does that bring to mind praying at all times ephesians 6 with spirit and prayer supplication to that end keep alert Matthew 26, 41, disciples watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Luke chapter 21, verse 36, men stay awake at all times praying as he's about to go to Gethsemane. And what did he come back and he found as Jesus Christ is there crying out in agony to the Father because darkness was all around, because the cross was coming, because he had a keen awareness of all that was going on and the wrath of God was nigh. And they come back and they find his church asleep. They couldn't stay up and pray for a little while. At different times they wake up, maybe Thomas and Peter, and, they, and one taps another one on the shoulder, and they say, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? In the middle of the night, He's up on a mountain praying somewhere. Why? Because He had a keen awareness of, the, of, of what was going on around them. Are we asleep? Comfortable in our Christianity, in American culture, with little um, to need, little need for aid. Comfortable in our 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 our, our, our huge houses and our multiple cars and our and our savvy jobs and our and our skill and our intellect and we've we've prepped enough and we've done this enough and this and that and that we just kind of hone in at church and we kind of hunker down and we're hunkering down at home and we're all comfortable and just just tucked in tucked in and at ease and and, and just and just falling asleep. 
Are we not aware? And we look at the other places like we prayed for the persecuted church and you just find demonic activity and Satan at large um, in Islam and in, in, in areas in Africa and you just see it so glaringly. Are we asleep to the fact that, that war rages right now all around us and particularly for your children? And that we'll be there for your children's children as well. Are we like Christ who has a keen awareness of all that's going on around us Today, and that if, 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 if he could have his way, and in many places he does, and maybe here, um, that, 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 that defeat would not look like the church closing its doors, but, the, but defeat would look like the church closing its mouths in, in total um, just, just, just need for, for the sufficiency of Christ. You know what it would look like? It would look like us getting up on a Sunday morning and just talking to each other as we close our eyes and bow our heads. It would look like men in their homes carrying on with a, with a, with a charade of, of prayerfulness and spiritual activity. Why? Because our children need to do what's right and not actually ever entering in boldly to the throne room of grace, begging God that He would save their children because otherwise they will never be. You know? Entering in so that God would bless your marriage and entering in so that He would make your wife more like Christ and He would make you more like Jesus. That, that today I didn't want to die for her, but, but would you make me like that? Because that's your promise. That's what you want, right, Lord? Like That's who you want me to be. Will you make me like that? I'm trusting you for it. There's so much just, 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 just noise and distraction and demonic activity at work. You know? I just see the laziness and the apathy and the indifference and the fear of, of all the people that I work around, Lord. Like, and I begin to believe them more than I believe you. God, help me to trust you. Help me to come to you by faith, Father. And I'm trusting that you'll give me that because I know that you want me to be that. Like, that's, why you're, that's why Jesus died on my behalf. Like, to make me like that, so I'm going to pursue you. Father, you've hid your face from me from a time, but you told me that if I seek your face, I'll find it, so I'm going to seek it with all that I am, Lord. You know? And Jesus comes back, will He find us asleep? Or is there a vigilance in us to be devoted to prayer because we know that if we don't ask Him, we won't have? Do we recognize that there's a war waging around us not only for our souls, but for the souls of our children and the souls of Kingsport and the souls of Tri-Cities? Such that we will utilize as Ephesians 6 after the armor that we would take prayer and the Spirit of God and, and that, that prayer as even he prays, Paul prays, to make the Word of God effective. Why? Because we know it's effective. Therefore, we need to trust that it's effective. Um, will we take that into the highways and into the hedges and into our homes trusting that, that God will take the Word and utilize the Word for what He desires? This is what churches look like. This is what it looks like to be um, devoted to Prayer. That's what it looks like to be devoted to prayer. It looks like waking up in the morning as Jesus did. Or staying up late at night like in Luke chapter 6 and verse number 12 where Jesus finds a secret place to meet with God. The disciples wonder where He's at and they say He's up there meeting with the Father. Why? Things are going pretty good. Ministry's thriving. People are being saved. You know? Let's relax. Or so asleep. Acts 1.13, it's corporate. Acts 6.14, Acts 6.4, devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word of the apostles. You know how important prayer is? Um, 
It's so important that they have to give up ministry to do it in Acts chapter 6. We've got to create a whole new office in the, deacon, the deaconate um, so that, they, so that the, so that the um, church can, can give itself over to prayer, that the apostles can't take themselves away from it, that the leaders of the church would be on their knees and give themselves. Why? Because we need the word to be effective. You know? And what a just slap in the face to how much time I give to the word of God every week and so little to prayer. And wonder some days why it looks like I just spit on the pew instead of preach the eternal truths of God. You know? I think it was uh, Martin Luther that would spend at least two hours a day in prayer. Um, three if he had a busy day. He would wake up early. He said, I don't have time to pray. We don't have time not to. I don't have time. Say, let's, say, let's say it like this. He said, I don't have time to pray. He said, I say, you don't have time to commune with God the very purchase, purpose for which He created you and died for you, sent His only Son to die on you and the Spirit that dwells in you. Like we don't have time to, 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 to do that. Then we are too busy. We are too, too busy. But that the Word is often born in the prayers of God's people. Thus Paul asked in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, that, that they would pray for Him that the Word would have free course in the hearts of the people. And that this wasn't just the ministry of the apostles, but this was the ministry of the entirety of the church. You know, I don't think they're even saying that the deacons don't need to pray. I actually think he was saying that the prayer um, will give fervency and effectualness to the to the um, to the to the legitimacy and the ministry of the word. You know what, church? That's exactly what you need. Whatever service God has given you, and whatever service God has given me, whether it's ministering to one another in this fashion or that fashion, um, the prayer is that is that which energizes um, each person's realm of service and makes it effectual whether it's feeding the flock of God or feeding widows. You know what it looks like in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? It's so important in verse number 5 that Paul encourages them at times, as husband and wife, to even forego physical intimacy for a time of prayer. Something that important. He says there may be periods and seasons and days that even you need to give up those things for prayer. Jesus gives up sleep the apostles give up ministry opportunities, good things to minister to the widows. Men and women are called up to give up physical intimacy or other things that might stand in the way uh, for, uh, to pursue God for um, essential matters. Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 13, skips a boat ride so he can walk. Why? Why don't you just take the boat? You'll get there quicker and you can minister quicker when you get there. Um, maybe it was that he needed to be alone with God in prayer. You know what devoted to prayer looks like? It looks like sometimes giving up sleep. Sometimes it looks like giving up ministry opportunities. Sometimes it looks like staying home from the abortion clinic or going to Hope House or going here or going there. Sometimes it looks like having to wake up early. Why? Because I still need to spend time with my wife and I'm not willing to give that up. Um, but maybe sometimes I need to do that. Why? Because there's something gnawing at me and an eye at the door that I need God's answer for and we need to devote ourselves to prayer. If you're going to be devoted to prayer, you're going to have to give up certain things like pleasure and, and a number of other things. Sometimes to just be alone with God. What are you willing to give? What are you willing to give? You say it's so hard. I know. But oftentimes it's simply hard because the only time we pray is when we pray in crisis. You know? 
We tend to run out of gas in prayer. We can't spend long periods of time in prayer because we generally just don't pray until those times, like this morning, you hear about a brother, you hear about a sister, you hear about a child, you hear about this or that, and you go to the Lord once and you're like, yeah, I, I, I made appeasement. You know, I did, I did my duty. So it's so hard to wake up an hour early and just spend your knees, spend time on your knees just pursuing the Lord. That's why in Philippians 4, 6, Paul encourages us to be in prayer for everything. That you need to be praying about everything along the way and not be caught off guard when crisis comes. That you need to be disciplined in prayer. That you're not going to get your prayer life to the depths that it needs to be to where you're crying out to God and, and desiring to see Him work and hear His voice in the shower on a Monday morning. You know? Or on the ride to work. It's going to take time and it's going to take sacrifice and it's going to take this and that. Just like breath in your body is sustained by the exercise of the lungs, um, the, 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 the prayer of God's people must be, exer- must be uh, sustained by the exercise of faithful prayer and thanksgiving. Devoted prayer looks like James 5.17. Praying prayerfully. Why? That it might rain. That it might rain. That when you pray prayerfully to God for His glory, God often answers and He brings down the power of God in the answer to that prayer. Amen. (laughs) Do you have episodes or experiences in your life where you can look and say, man, God was just, He was there. You know? You want faith? Pray faithfully and God will give you faith to pursue it. And then when He answers, man, God will just increase your faith even more. Man, He'll do it so much more. I remember last year at Laurel Run, um, I was thinking about Elijah and the prayer of of rain and uh, we're on the way there and we get there and we're there at the the fellowship and all that and then Anna runs up to me a little bit later with just joy on her face and she said, Daddy, I prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't. The clouds cleared the way. You know, some of us will look at that and be like, eh, it was providential, it was discounted. Uh, Don't you tell my little girl that God is not able to do things like that. That's exactly what God does. Things like that. We're just too scared sometimes to pray it. Or we're too far asleep. Or we're deadened by the world. You know, we've got a little view of God. And um, believing that He is not able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Therefore, um, we, put, we put more, spend more time in social media than we do on our knees with our faces um, towards the floor in the presence of God. See, what do you want in 2021? What are we going to do as a church? I don't know. Part of it is I don't know because I haven't really prayed about it. Not earnestly. Not devoted. Not faithfully. Not persistently. Not actually believing that God will give me clear direction. Again, I'm content with this year if all we do is pray. Pray at home. Pray in our families. Seek the Lord. Come together in a prayer meeting on Wednesday night or whenever. Just seek the Lord together. Call out on God for one another and for our community and for Christ. In unity. You want a mature church and that'll be it. It'll be born there. It'll be born here. If we're praying prayerfully, it'll be born there as well. I was... Studying this week, man, and God just hammered it home and just convicted my heart of so many things, particularly my prayerlessness. 
after I got done listening to a sermon uh, somewhat like that, um, just all the blessings of, um, of prayer and all that God wants to do and desires to do and all that in my life, all that He's capable of doing, the pastor just had to go and meddle and read this passage in Psalm 66, verse 18. If you regard iniquity in your heart, He will not hear. Isaiah 59, 2, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Then I read um, James, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Then I read the first Peter chapter 3 and understood that, men, if you don't dwell with your wives in understanding, that it will hinder your prayers. And he quotes the book of Psalms. That oftentimes our prayers are not answered because there's something between us and the Lord. And then I was reminded once again of all those dwelling place passages of the temple of God in the New Testament. And I and um, just drew, God just drove it home in my heart that that's why, Lord, you said to flee from idolatry and be holy. That sometimes prayers aren't answered simply because we're not devoted. And we're not devoted because we're sunk deep down in sin. And God doesn't hear the effectual fervent prayers of a sinful man. That the first step in becoming a church that honors God both individually and corporately is to pursue Him I mean, confession, faith, and repentance. And if we've not done that, then we're just going to walk away here frustrated, um, disunified, um, because we're angry at each other, pointing the finger at everybody, um, you know, because we don't think we're the issue. There's a call and a plea today for each of us to do the work, um, the individual work with God. That um, powerful churches are only made up of powerful individuals, and powerful prayer here is only cultivated in powerful places at home in your secret place. So if there's anything that you need to take care of with God, I beg you to do it today. That He desires to dwell with His people. Um, And I've done that as well. Imagine waking up on a ventilator and knowing that you can't breathe. I've seen it. The eyes roll back in the head, fear just grips them they want to reach up and pull out all their tubes so often they restrain them they don't know where they are or what they're doing you know may that not be our church you know who wakes up every once in a while just strapped to a bed fearful not knowing who we are what we're doing we're just being sustained by our own strength may God give us some breath may God give us some life Um, may God give us some men and women who will spend the time necessary on their knees to pursue God. Um, and if you ask me what I'm going to do in 2021, the first thing that I'm going to do is create a corporate prayer meeting. I used to think that it was unnecessary that the worship of God was here. I didn't push for much else. I don't require you to come to Sunday school or anything like that. Um, But I am convinced now more than ever that um, prayer both individually and corporately is an essential part of the unity and maturity of anybody. And if we are ever going to accomplish those great things that God has given us to do, we are only going to accomplish it by His power. Leave you with one verse, and I know I went way over. Forgive me. Romans chapter 12 or 16 and verse number 20. 
read this this week. I don't know why it's not stood out to me in days past, but he says these words. All the brethren greet you. Um, forgive me, I went to 1 Corinthians. And I thought. Romans chapter 16 and verse number 20. You read these words. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Isn't that an amazing verse? It almost seems like a contradiction. The God of peace will crush Satan. How? Under your feet shortly. That's a weapon that God had given to defeat the devil and overcome the world and to pursue the kingdom of God in this world lies within the church. It relies within the dwelling place of God, this very temple. Um, thus we must, with all that we have, pursue it. I am not interested in building my own kingdom here. I am not. I have woke up on a ventilator too many days, spiritually speaking. Frustrated, wondering why can't I breathe, son, because you've been trying to breathe on your own for too long. You don't have the strength. Christ is sufficient. Let us pursue Him. Are you devoted to prayer? Men, are you leading your families in prayer? Church, when you stand up here and you pray, do you pray as if God is before you because He is? Let us be a church who pursues a devotion to prayer so that He can work through us and give us what He desires for us to have. So let's seek Him now. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for your glory. God, we thank you for the privilege it is to call upon your name. God, we revel in your glory and your majesty and the power of an almighty God. Father, we revel in the majesty of Jesus Christ who would condescend to such a place as I am and give his life for such a person as I. But Father, that's the, that's the, the nature of amazing grace, isn't it? Father, we are your church. I have no doubt about that. But we have so much to learn. And maybe these folks don't. Maybe I do. Maybe I'm in the presence of so many prayer warriors, Father. Would you put me under their ministry for a little while that I could see how they bombard the very throne room of grace? God, would you give me diligence in prayer and faith to believe that you're able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think? May I not come to you, Father, afraid and fearful to ask you for great things. Because you are a great God, Father, who if evil men give good gifts to their children, how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Father, you are there ready to give, Father. We are just simply not ready to ask. So help us to ask. Help us to seek. Help us to long. Help us to sacrifice. Help us to pursue. Help us, Father, to be men and women of prayer who long for the dwelling and communion with God. We trust that's why you saved us. Thus, we trust you'll help us in our pursuit. In Jesus' name, amen.